92% of households that start the year with Peloton are still active a year later. 92% because of a bike? Not just bikes. We also make treadmills and rowers. Oh, let me guess, for elite athletes only, right? Nope. It doesn't matter if you're an avid exerciser or new to working out. Peloton can help you achieve your fitness goals. 92% stick with it. So can you. Try Peloton bikes, tread or row, risk-free with a 30-day home trial. New members only. Not available in remote locations. See additional terms at onepeloton.com slash home dash trial. Welcome to Techno Roll, a special Let It Roll Maxi series on the history of DJs, disco, and electronic dance music, hosted by Nate Wilcox and Ryan Harkness. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast, and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.PantheonPodcasts.com. Nate uses AKG microphones and headphones. Today, Nate and Ryan are joined by Bill Brewster and Frank Broughton, the authors of Last Night a DJ Saved My Life, The History of the Disc Jockey, and get to ask some of the questions that have come up over the course of our 21-episode journey. Email us at letitrollpodcast at gmail.com. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. to let it roll or should i say techno roll i'm your host nate wilcox ryan hartness and i today are joined by bill brewster and frank whose name i've been mispronouncing the entire season (laughs) frank broughton rather than broughton and so fellas welcome to the show hi there hi Hi, nate nice to be here and um so the book is last night a dj saved my life the history of the disc jockey which is just this to me, absolutely pivotal tome that totally changed the way I saw DJs and understood dance music. But, Bill, how did the two of you guys come together? Um, I moved to New York in 1994 uh, to run the office of a British company called DMC. And DMC at that stage was publishing Mixmag, which was the kind of one of the main dance music magazines in the UK. And I was also writing for Mixmag as well. Uh, And I was brought in to run their New York office. And Frank was already over in New York and was a stringer for Mixmag and various other magazines. He was basically the New York correspondent of uh, various magazines in, in the States. And he came up to the office about a week after I moved to New York to introduce himself really. And, um, and we were working with each other pretty much as soon as we met each other because he was submitting pieces for a a small magazine that I was running and we just started hanging out together almost straight away. And you have to say DMC at that time was also running the, uh, the famous uh, DJ mixing competition, the hip hop thing. Ah, yeah. Big part of it, wasn't it? Yeah, I forgot. Um, yeah, DMC was running the big, the big uh, DMC mixing battles with, um, yeah, guys like Shortcut and Rock Raider and all these kind of legendary uh, DJs from the scratch scene. And Frank, what inspired you two guys to write the book? Well, we were. I think I, I think we were sitting in Time Cafe after um, a working day. Uh, I seem to remember Time Cafe for some reason, but we were sitting in there having a drink. And it was we 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 
been in New York. I'd been in New York for four years when Bill turned up, and and he'd been uh, obviously uh, baptism of fire, meeting all the dance people, all the DJs, which is back then it was a very tight knit community, and we realised that we had collected quite a lot of stories, and we'd met a lot of really um, interesting people in the clubs who had all these great stories about. Um, just the, the the decadence and the excitement and the largely the sort of seventies and eighties before we were there, but we we sort of met these people with great great oral history about dance music and clubs, and we said, well, someone should write a book about this, and and so we actually formulated the idea um, there and then. Um, to write a book about disco fundamentally. I think that was the original genesis was we were thinking that no one had really documented disco particularly well. And we were going to frame it between Stonewall and AIDS um, and make a very sort of sociological um, deep dive into into the club history of, 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 of just one genre, really. We were just going to think about New York. And we were just going to think about disco. Um, but it was our publisher back in back in London a, lo- a long time after this. That, that idea sort of gestated for a long time. Um, but our, our publisher, Doug Young, who we, we wrote a, a kind of coffee table book for Ministry of Sound together, um, which was our first foray into books. Um, but he had the genius idea of why don't you write the whole history of DJing? And immediately we just, like, light bulbs flashed and we thought, yes, yes, immediately that is the way to do it. And and so we, we do owe him a debt of gratitude, uh, Doug Young at, at uh, Headline at the time, uh, for really just expanding what, uh, what the book was. Um, and I think we, we took the bit between our teeth and really um, decided, okay, no one's done this before. We're going to do uh, a really epic job on it. Now, with that being such a, a larger uh, scope of a, of a project, Bill, can you, you give us a little bit of an idea of what the knowledge landscape was as far as DJ history goes back when you guys started researching this book in, I guess, what, like the mid-90s or so? Were you basically starting with a bunch of urban legends and anecdotes scattered across back issues of Mixmag? I mean, obviously, the Internet was just starting out, so there wasn't a, a wealth of information to access from there. Yeah, I mean, it was very scrappy, to be honest. So um, there were often factual inaccuracies in a lot of the reporting. A lot of it was anecdotal. Um, In the UK, people would write about the Paradise Garage and describe it as being in Newark in New Jersey and uh, getting all kinds of things confused. So so one of the reasons we really wanted to do it was to kind of lay a marker down, I suppose, for the culture that we were both so immersed in because we loved it and we felt that there were all these books about Bob Dylan and the Beatles and yet there wasn't a single book about this amazing culture and it felt criminal that uh, no one had ever tackled it. So so the knowledge was very sketchy. We, we had to do it the old school way. We were going into the British Library day after day and looking through microfiche and looking through back issues of Billboard and Record World and um, Mixmag and Blues and Soul and Black Music and New Musical Express. I mean, we, we kind of, I mean, we've, I've got a pile of, of boxes upstairs with photocopies from all of these magazines that we kind of had to raid to try and um, piece together a story. But But essentially, our story, as much as we could make it, was 
was kind of like an oral history, really. And we were kind of threading the narrative to uh, let people speak in between that. I think the transatlantic nature of our experience was was really key to to um, understanding. I think because we had the perspective of seeing where kind of rave culture had had happened, and and seeing how house music had become so huge in in the UK. I think we 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 knew that they had come from Chicago and and, and New York. Um, so we had that we had that understanding. Of of that transatlantic crossing, and and I think that's a big part of how music's evolved. Uh, you know, right back to to rock and before um, blues, even um, it's that transatlantic sort of slight mistranslation of things, and and the grass is always greener. And I think, I mean, we've we've joked about this um, that if someone from the UK who hadn't lived in New York had written this book, they would have kind of started in Ibiza. Um, and because we were, you know, we were that sort of grass is greener and we were in New York loving the culture. So I think we we brought to it that dual perspective and we sort of understood that um, that the, the, the culture that was being enjoyed in Europe wasn't necessarily European. It, it had roots in America. And, and then when you get deeper into the story, you realize that that, that, that works both ways. So you, you think about Detroit and you realize that what those kids were doing was trying to be as European as possible and listening to, to very European music. So I think, I think the reason that we were well-placed to, 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 to understand the, the narrative was that sort of dual dual nationality kind of feeling now uh frank if you can if you can kind of lay out how you guys kind of collaborated and split duties up was one man like the point guy for all the interviews <laughs> or did you just split the workload up by genre or era and uh how did you decide whose name got first building on the book was it like a monumental game of rock paper scissor <laughs> i think it's alphabet it's alphabetical isn't it i think <laughs> I think uh, Bruce DeBroughton is alphabetical. And then I think on the second book, the How to DJ book, it's the other way around. We, we, we traded. So um, that was how that was resolved. In, in terms of the work, I, I think, um, I mean, we'd, we'd done this book for Ministry of Sound, which was basically us emptying our hard drives of, uh, of a lot of, um, you know, little pieces we'd written uh, uh, a lot of which were historical or, or sort of explaining the roots of a genre. So we, we'd done this little book for Ministry of Sound, and that's really how we got the book deal. Um, and in terms of how we divvied it up, um, we, we, we kind of sketched out what we thought was the story. And then we, we worked out who we might speak to. I think we started doing some interviews in the UK, but there was, there was a big frenzied two-week period where we were in New York, two or three weeks. Um, and we were basically just going around. And this is before, I mean, people had email barely, but people, people still had pages and we were just collecting names and numbers and, uh, and going off interviewing them. And, and we sort of divided it up I think uh, it's fair to say in terms of DJing, the sort of the big revolutions were, were disco and hip hop. And so the bulk of our interviews at that time were I, I was going up to the Bronx and Harlem and interviewing the, the pioneer first generation of rappers. And Bill was down in the village talking to all the, the disco pioneers. And so we'd sort of divvy it up that way. And then we'd meet in the evening and go, oh, my God, this is connected to this and this is connected to this. And you'd never guess who used to go to the Paradise Garage from the hip hop world. And you never guess how this record got up into the hip hop world. And 
Um, I think that was exciting, the sort of all the cross-pollinations. But essentially, that was the, 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 um, how we divided the work up. And then in writing, we would just write a chapter each and then swap them and, and, and trade them back and forth until we were both happy. And let's go ahead and hear a song that you guys played in one of your DJ sets. This is something we found on Mixcloud. And this is one I was really surprised to find in a, in a dance set. But this is Odetta's Hit or Miss. And that was Odetta's hit or miss. And that's a very sort of Balearic thing to do, throw that into a dance set. Um, how much credit do you guys give yourselves in the book, Bill, for the increased prestige of DJs that we've seen in the 21st century? <laughs> that's a really hard question to answer. I mean, I, I don't really know. I don't think that we're necessarily the ones to to lay claim to how much influence it's had. I, I mean, I know that on a personal level, a lot of people have written to us and come up to us over the years and said it, it had a big impact on them. And, and even people like um, Questlove and uh, James Murphy from LCD Sound System and people like that. So so I, I know it's had some impact, but I, I don't want to kind of say, oh, yeah, it's done this and it's done that. I'm, I'm honestly not sure. Um, I, I think what it did do is kind of um, – we wrote it in such a hopefully authoritative way that I think it gave uh, the scene a, a kind of a, a historic standing and credibility that it had lacked prior to that. I think prior to that, it was seen a little bit as girls in fluffy bras kind of dancing on the tops of bars. And we wanted to show that it was a a whole lot more than that. That was a real genuine culture that underpinned the whole of uh, DJ culture. I think I think we've seen. Um, I mean, it was the it was the first book in in our generation to take DJing seriously. There, we we found a few where they um, there were a few books in the past where people had uh, tried to de um, describe the scene. Albert Goldman actually wrote a great book on disco. He really understood what was happening in New York in the seventies. Um, but I think what 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 our book did and sort of. Part of it is just a generation growing up and having more influence in, in culture. But I think we, we we used to get into our arguments with academics about why didn't we put footnotes in there. But we did make it as academically rigorous as we could, even though we didn't add footnotes. Um, we didn't want it to look like an academic book, but we tried to you know uh, make sure we had corroboration for things, even though it's very much an oral history. Um, but I think, you know, seeing afterwards the the explosion of, of interest in those subjects and in those genres and seeing um, people like Tim Lawrence take things and, and, and you know, what we might have covered in a chapter he, he, he devotes an entire book to and, and in forensic detail. You know, it's great to see that we open the doors for, for people taking this seriously. And. I guess it's just a, you know, some some of it is a time shift. I think music journalism was very stuck in in sort of in in in, in rock music and punk and and, and post punk and um, it it was hard for dance music to get a look in 
for a long time. And I think the rave movement probably didn't necessarily help that because it, it sort of ended up in, in, in a place where people could, could ridicule it in the press. And they did. I mean, when it got to kind of hardcore and jungle, that was exactly what was happening. So the, the establishment rock press was, was sort of laughing at the dance culture. Um, it's, it's probably worth pointing out, you know, uh, um, the Penguin Encyclopedia of Popular Music, when we were researching the book, called Disco a, a regrettable um, movement. I mean, the, 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 the fact that a, a, a book that's trying to be a, a, a neutral encyclopedia uses the word regrettable for disco kind of sums up the, 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 the scene that we were, we were publishing into. Absolutely. And Frank, and, and I'll let Bill go after you, but of all the genres that are covered in the book, which one have you danced to the most yourself? <laughs> I guess I guess uh, House and Disco. And Bill? Yeah, the same. I mean, we, we kind of, yeah, we, we, we both kind of grew up in the, in the Acid House era, I suppose, although I'd been going out to clubs prior to that. Um, I think that the two styles of music that we've both loved the most are house and then disco because it had such a huge impact on an influence on house music. Now, I understand you guys are not just DJs, but uh, you have a little bit of promoter blood in you as well. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about the low life parties I keep on reading about on the Internet over the past uh, 20 years. And uh, I understand that there's a possible book project coming up uh, out, of, out of that. Uh, I, I guess, uh, Bill, if you want to let me know, or I think Frank might have been uh, more of the, 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 the chief low life in all of this. No, um, it, was, it was definitely both of us doing low life. It was a, a labour of love that <laughs> we, we, you know, how the KLF burnt a million pounds, and there was the profit from their single. We we were we were planning to burn a five pound note that was the profit from low. <laughs> Um, I, low life really was a very informal party that, that we started when we lived in New York. And the whole time that we lived in New York, it didn't even have a name. It was just a party that we did and it was free. And we do it. First of all, we did it in Harlem in the house that Frank was living in. And then and then we did a few in a loft in the East Village. Uh, and then when we and, and then the only reason we started it was because the sound factory closed and we didn't have anywhere to go on a Saturday. So um, and then we moved back to England and we started doing it again there and and that's when it kind of really started sort of igniting I suppose we started charging a little bit of money for people to get in it was still very informal though and I think we only really gave it the name low life after we'd done maybe about eight or nine parties and we'd, we'd already thrown quite a few parties before it ever had a name um so so we never intended to be promoters we're kind of accidental promoters and we we always describe low life as a professional house party but so we kind of wanted to um keep it away from being just a boring ordinary club night um so we always kind of had a, a each one had a theme and we'd expect people to kind of uh, make an effort to dress up uh, depending on what the theme was and but but not fancy dress more kind of dressing dressing fabulously i suppose for want <laughs> of a better description um and and, it, and yeah it became a bit of a phenomenon so within two years of moving back to the uk we were 
with with purely with word of mouth we we didn't advertise anywhere um we were getting 500 people like every time we had a party and it and then we st- started doing advanced tickets and then it, and then it would sell out in advance so you know we've pretty much sold out every party we've done in advance so it yeah it's kind of weird that we're still talking about it now really because we started it in 26 years ago well, the book. I mean, Heather, who's who, who's taken pictures throughout those twenty six years, she's she's putting a book together uh, with uh, the other photographer, with Mark Pringle, who took a lot of photography. Um, but she's, you know, she's getting all the people who got married because they met at Low Life, and it's like a it's a double digit number. You know, there's a lot of people. It's a big family that's we've just gathered over the years. Um, and I think the secret to its success was that, that it, we, we never expected it to be more than a, a party. And there was always a, a very much a socializing, hanging out, you know, who brought you into the crowd, who brought you into the family. Um, and the music was always absolutely spectacular. It's like, you know, the music was some of the best music you could hear in London. And I think those two things, we, do, we, we were perfectionists about it. So the, the quality of the decorations, the quality of the lighting, the quality of the... We, we learned from the great parties of New York that, you know, every little detail can, can make something, you know, 1%, 2% better. So we, we put so much effort into those parties and it really, you know, over the years, it's become a, a, a beautiful family of freaks that we're still in touch with. And I think we've got Halloween on the books uh, as we come out of lockdown. Um, we've got Corsica Studios in London that uh, we're going to do a party there. Uh, it's good to hear that it's coming back. I think I saw maybe one or two last low life party ever uh, posts <laughs> or, or, or events, and uh, I'm glad to see that it, it, it it's coming back. Uh, now, back back to last night at DJ Save My Life and, and the whole interviewing process and everything. Can you name some of the wildest people that you ended up talking to? Ian Levine pops up in the books across several chapters, and, and he seems like a very unique character, as does uh, Francis Grazzo, getting, getting to talk to someone who, like that who was in the thick of it must have been pretty impressive. Uh, Frank, if you want to start on this one. Um, yeah, I remember, I think we both interviewed Ian Levine on separate occasions. I remember um, that he has a he has a Dalek from, like a genuine Dalek from the Doctor Who series sitting in the corner. And he had a, a, a kind of butler, a very young boy um, was his butler, bringing him a, a plate full of bacon sandwiches that was probably like, that were probably like, eight or 10 bacon sandwiches on, on this plate. And he just sat through the interview talking in paragraphs. I think it was like a three hour interview, just with an uh, incredible memory for um, facts and records and, 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 and details. So he was, he was very much a larger in life character. I think, I think the, the, the most fun storyteller, I think we'd both agree was Fabio from um, Fabio and Groove Rider. So um uh, yeah, you know, I mean, there's so many characters. I think, uh, especially in the early days, being a DJ was, you know, being a character was kind of part of that. It was like, you know, you, the, the early guys were putting their own parties together. They were coalescing. They had their own sound equipment. They were they were creating the party. So, big characters. Most most of the people we spoke to were big characters. I, I think also you have to remember that up until um, the 
acid house era that even the most successful DJs weren't really ever earning that much money. Even the ones that were considered legends and superstars, they really weren't earning a massive amount of money from doing this. It's, so the people that were doing it prior to the mid to late 80s really were kind of, they, they loved music, basically. They, they were musical evangelists and musical salespeople that just wanted people to fall in love with the music that they loved. And speaking of music that they love, this is a song we found on your Late Night Tales Likes playlist on Spotify. This is Fear Tag, Saccharin 374. Fear Tag Saccharin 374 from the Late Night Tales playlist. And Bill, if you had a time machine and you could go back and dance to a set by any of the DJs you talk about in your book whose sets have not been recorded for posterity, who would you like to hear most in their heyday? Uh, Larry Levan at the Paradise Garage, I guess. Um, I, I, either him or Ron Hardy at the Music Box in Chicago. Those two are the ones that I'd most like to have, have seen just because I've had so many descriptions and you can you can almost taste the atmosphere from people's uh, descriptions. So, yeah, I, I, the first time I ever came to New York was in 1991 and the Paradise Garage closed in 1987, so I missed it by a few years. And Frank? Um, yeah, I mean, both, both of those definitely, I, 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 I don't know, I'd be so greedy going back in time. I'd, I'd be um, doing a different club every night. I, I think um, the Roxy as a scene, I think that would be an amazing place to have been at in terms of the cross-pollination, all the different strands of what was going on in New York in the mid-80s, mid to late-80s. I think the Roxy where there was the uptown kids and hip hop was gestating and there was the downtown art scene and uh, all of that was all happening at once. I think, you know, you had kind of punk and disco and hip hop all still having a massive impact. And, and I think the Roxy was the, the place where that all collided. So I would, I would have loved to do uh, had, had a night in the Roxy, definitely. And one question, Frank, we've puzzled over this quite a bit because our, our edition is the new edition of the book from 2006 and that's the latest date anywhere in the frontispiece or the copyright but there's multiple points where you reference things that happened in the 2010s are you guys psychic nostradamus <laughs> future predictors or is there I something going on with this i think they just didn't update the frontispiece i think that's the only explanation for that i've, I've, I've uh, wait, wait, yeah we did a little update about three or four years ago for the American edition, and that's probably the one you're referring to. So it would definitely have had some of the kind of EDM explosion in it and stuff like that, which obviously wasn't around in 2006. But, yeah, that that must be just a typo. Okay, good. I, I was wanted to clarify <laughs> that. And, and let's hear from our sponsors briefly, and then when we come back, Ryan will have some more questions. 
Okay, and we're we're back with Bill Brewster and Frank Broughton, uh, authors of uh, Last Night a DJ Saved My Life, and uh, I got you guys seemed pretty ahead of your time when it came to calling out issues of race and sexuality when you saw them in, in this in this book. There's a, there's a lot on Britain's segregated history and 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 I guess current state uh, and the homophobia and backlash behind uh, the disco and and house. Uh, and of course, uh, there's, you know, how black pioneers often get largely overlooked when it comes to dance music history. Was this was this something that you kind of was was it a learning experience for you guys as you were researching the book and seeing seeing all of this stuff? Uh, did, did you kind of uh, learn going along that it was like this or did you kind of have an idea going in? We, we, we knew. Um, firstly, my, I, I'd been going from the late 1980s. An ex-girlfriend had taken me to a gay club called Troll in London. And uh, for two or three years, I didn't go to a straight club at all. I was just going to gay clubs all the time. And then not long after that, I moved to New York. And, and honestly, in the early 90s, if you went to a club and it was good, it was gay. Uh, there weren't any good straight clubs. I mean, that just is how it was in New York. And so living in New York, we were both myself and Frank were completely embedded in the gay community. And you could not be if you were involved in dance music in that era. So Fra Frank lived in a house full of uh, gay men. Um, so, yeah, we, we knew about that. We, we were kind of although we were both straight, we were hanging out. We just had a lot of gay friends. So it, it seemed pretty natural to me that we would write about that because we knew that disco was primarily gay, that, that what was going on in Chicago was largely a gay scene, what was going on in New York was a largely gay scene. And parts of London as well. So, yeah, I mean, I'm sure Frank can elaborate on that. I, I, I think it's a pretty fundamental part of the story, really. I think what, what the, you know, the theme, the, 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 the kind of... Um, the, the chronology or the or the one of the recurring themes in in the story of dance music is of people who are oppressed or um, or marginalized making fun for themselves and whether that's uh, you know black gay people in Chicago or um, out of work working class kids in uh, northern England you know it's it's marginalized people that that try and make new things happen because they haven't got anything else and and, and I think that you know that that's that's a big big part of the story, um, especially when it comes to music and you know what moves things on is is a bit of a revolution and it's usually um, driven by some people who aren't at the centre of of making money. <laughs> Now, Frank, was, was there any pushback from the publishers when you brought them uh, a book that, that spent so much time laying the groundwork with dub, soul, rare groove? Uh, like, 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 were they saying this is this is OK, but we were really hoping for more quotes from from Tiesto or something like that? No, not really. I think I mean, the, the, the superstar thing was really. It, it hadn't peaked. I mean, it kind of peaked at the millennium, which was a year after the book first came out. So we were in the in the at the beginning of that whole kind of crazy superstar DJ worship. Um, but no, our, our, our publisher, our, our editor was very understanding. He definitely that wasn't um, it wasn't the sort of the, the big commercial thing that he wanted. He wanted to do it properly. And, and he, you know, there was never any pushback. Um, no, uh, definitely not. Uh, let's go with another song sample. This is one from a Bill Brewster boiler room set from Croatia that we found on YouTube. This is Chalanis R. Jones, Pinwell Piaf, the Tiger Stripes remix. 
that was Chalanis R. Jones' Pinwheel Piaf, the Tiger Stripes remix from a set that Bill Brewster played in Croatia that we found on YouTube. And Bill, you covered a lot of ground in this. And it just seems to me like impossible that you would love every single genre that you covered. What was the genre that you had to spend the most time on that was your least favorite? God, that's really difficult because I, I think you find uh, I, I actually can't think of uh, anything in the book that that we didn't like. I mean, um, we found all of it fascinating, really. I mean, there's some music that I listen to more than other. I mean, I, I don't listen to reggae so much, um, whereas I listen to disco and, you know, Balearic sounds or house or whatever much more but just the stories themselves are so fascinating that it really helps you get an appreciation for the music I think and the more that you read about a style of music I've often got into particular genres of music just because I bought a book about it and wanted to learn more uh, I mean for example I'm in the middle of reading a book about Cuban music at the moment and, and I've been listening to more Cuban music lately um, so I, I think both myself and Frank have always had like a really widescreen view of music and we've very rarely disagreed or argued over that, those kind of things and Frank, anything for you that was was a harder to cover than others? Um, not really. I think. Um, I mean, we've updated the book a few times. There's a point at which a DJ isn't necessarily the figure making the changes. It's more of a production thing, or a, um, you know, the, the, we, we start the first edition of the book. We had this phrase: "Remember the DJ," because we didn't want to stray too far into into um we we realized how big the story was and we didn't want to stray too far away from the essential biography of this figure the dj um and so i think you know as you get older you get um you get slightly more detached i'm not you know bill's bill's a professional dj i'm not um i i, I dj maybe five or six times a year um so i'm buying music but i'm not buying music a lot of the time um, but I have a, you know, I set myself a task, actually. It's, it's interesting. My daughter's 13 and I started, um, instead of, instead of kind of ignoring and tuning out the music that she's into, I started delving into sort of, um, younger pop and just trying to find myself. So I started building a playlist of things that actually are brilliant of, of in that world that I totally am not a part of and totally don't understand. And it's amazing how you can find just brilliant music in, in, in most genres, I think you know it, it's there's a saying you can't be wrong about music because you know what you, what you know what you love um but equally i think there's so much amazing music out there you can usually find something in any genre that will spark something in you and frank to follow that up in the last quarter of the book you know you the time telescopes a little differently and, and there's so many genres coming out of Britain in the 90s that you don't cover them necessarily with the same depth that you gave say northern soul or high energy are there any genres you felt like you underserved from that period well the i mean if you if you get a hold of a copy of the first edition of the book we really um didn't go into much detail about um the whole UK rave scene because there'd been a couple of books that had just come out. So we felt we didn't want to go to too much detail about that. We also didn't really get too far into techno. Um, you know, we had a couple of interviews, but we really didn't go too far into the whole Detroit and afterwards. Whereas the second edition, we had a chance to um, bolster all of that up. 
Um, and, you know, in, in, in subsequent editions, I, th I think the end of the book is more thematic. I think the end of the book, like I say, we wanted to talk about the evolution of the DJ as a craft, as a profession. And we wanted to talk about the way the DJ has changed music. Um, and I think music now changes, you know, uh, at such a, an amazing pace because everyone can make electronic music. You can make it on your phone. My daughter makes music. You know, she records things on Garage Band and then chops them up. And uh, I think music now is much more of a, it, it's a universal thing that we can make um, electronic music. Whereas up until, I mean, the, the, the DJ's role was really laid down in, in disco and hip hop. And then everything after that is, is essentially sort of playing around with the gene pool. I think that's how we think of it. And Bill, anything that you would change in terms of emphasis from that period and what you covered and didn't cover? Uh, no, there isn't actually. I mean, because we're about to do a little update for for a UK edition coming out next year. So I I spent a fortnight going through it really, really forensically and checking dates and uh, and and it was the first time I'd really read it for 15 years and I really, really enjoyed reading it again. I was, I was really happy at the end of it. I thought, you know, this is, this is, you, you feel like you almost don't want to touch it too much because it, it's kind of, it's a bit of a timepiece in a way. And, um, and, and, and I'm worried about damaging the equilibrium by kind of delving in there and changing things too much. Yeah, also be a lot of work. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, there's that as well. <laughs> now, you guys have been very active, or you were very active for years, updating DJHistory.com uh, with interviews after the book came out. And then you ended up shutting it down and, and moving all the content over to Red Bull Music Academy in two, 2016. I was just wondering what, what the impetus was for that. Was the weight of maintaining this archive just, just getting too cumbersome? Bill, if you could give me a little bit of insight on that. Well, well, for a few years, we sort of tried to turn DJ history into a business, um, but we launched it just as uh, the um, massive uh, financial crash. So it was launched at a really terrible time, and that kind of meant we were constantly having to swim furiously to stay afloat. Um, so it never really worked, even though we had a, a very good numbers in terms of page impressions and all that kind of stuff. But um, I think Facebook was the other thing. I mean, we had a massive yeah. forum and Facebook came and, and, and took the life out of a lot of forums. Um, I think we were, we were a lot of the time we were ahead of the curve. There were technologies that arrived just after we'd done things. So like the technology of print on demand for books turned up just after we'd struggled to print, you know, publish our own books. And, and, and Amazon arrived just after we'd been selling books ourselves. Uh, you know, so I think we struggled because we were a little bit ahead of, we were trying to do everything the hard way and suddenly it became easier. But by that time we'd run out of money. So, um, but the good news, I'll let Bill talk about the good news. Okay, so a company approached us about six months ago and said they wanted to, like the Titanic, they wanted to refloat DJ history. 
So there are currently a load of, of divers in the Atlantic dredging up DJ history to um, spruce it up. We're going to have a forum and we're going to have a shop and, and we're going to have some of those interviews. And and actually, one of the questions you mentioned was about interviews. And uh, I, I'm afraid I'm an obsessive interviewer and I've continued to interview people often with absolutely no purpose whatsoever other than it was an opportunity to interview them. So I've got quite a lot of interviews that people have never seen um, because I felt if you have the opportunity and people die on you, which unfortunately when you're you're interested in history, they, that that is what happens to older people. So I've really tried to keep interviewing older people before they die, uh, to be brutally honest about it. And I feel like it's our duty to kind of keep the stories alive and keep these people's stories um, out in, in public view. So I think that'll be that'll be probably live at the beginning of next year or maybe before. It's probably the end of this year, isn't it, I guess? Yeah, I think the end of the summer, hopefully, there'll be beta testing. Oh, well, that, that pretty much wraps up my uh, my questions on DJHistory.com. So, Nate, you can go ahead with your next one. Cool. Yeah, let's go ahead and hear the last song. This is something we found from one of Frank's set at a low-life party from Corsica from 2017. This is the Bantu clan versus Sarabi. Africa Nileo, the ESA extended mix. Was the Bantu clan versus Sarabi, Africa Nileo, the Essa extended mix. And Bill, do you feel like at one point in the book you talk about Britain, and this is a fairly acknowledged fact, at least from the 1990s, from the 1960s through the 20, early 21st century, that Britain was the world's chief exporter of youth culture. Do you feel like Britain has maintained that position this far into the 21st century? Yeah, I do. There's, some, there's something unique about the kind of um, inner city experience in the UK, maybe because it's so uh, divorced and marginalised from from a country that's kind of largely run by a, a political and and economic elite. Um, so you've got like the Queen and um, all of these public school people running the country like it's their personal fiefdom. And then you've got all of these like black and white kids in council estates in London and Birmingham and Leeds and uh, Glasgow or wherever. And, and they're living a completely different life in a completely different world. And I think that that is a big part of why culture is so, that youth culture is so important in the UK. And it, and it moves. It's very fast paced. It's very hard to even stay in touch with. The other thing is we have a small, it's a very small country. So, and we have national radio stations that will play music quite early in a way that that you wouldn't get in the US because they're not commercial stations. So I think those two things are really important for disseminating culture and, and musical culture. Yeah, we used to have, I mean, there was, I think, four or five weekly music magazines in, in the 80s, wasn't there? Um, and loads of monthlies. So there was just this massive industry of, of people interested in culture, 
Um, and I think uh, maybe it's a colonial hang up, but we're, we're very good at combining things that have been plundered from elsewhere or, or reframing things that have been um, found and discovered and slightly got, you know, um, transla- mistranslated. I think a lot of great musical moments come from mistranslations and sort of clumsy versions of things. And, and I think the UK has excelled at that. I think, I think right now the energy, there's an increase incredible energy in, in sort of British African, I think that sort of um, British kids of African descent, I, th- I think are really ruling music in, in a way that hasn't happened before. I think that kind of Jamaican culture, which was sort of British black culture, has 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 been melded into something that's a little bit more African now, which is really exciting. Um, so hopefully Brexit won't change everything, but um, we're still we're still having fun in some way once we come out of lockdown. Now, the, the book uh, kind of ends with, with that chapter sellout, which is a bit of a bummer note to end on as we discuss uh, the issues surrounding the commodification of DJing and, and the watering down of the art. I, I'm curious, Frank, to hear your, you seem pretty positive in general about, uh, you know, dance music today, but but what are your thoughts now on, on the state of DJing, the commodification of DJing, uh, the selling out, as we say? Uh, are, you, are you still worried about DJing maybe going down a, a bad direction or are you feeling more confident now that we're 20 years removed and everything still seems to float just fine well that chapter actually was a recent addition and that was largely to deal with um more recent events so i think um but but the other thing i would say is that that chapter is a pessimistic chapter about the commodification of djs and the crazy crazy amount of money that some of them earn because of social media and because of the idea that um you know you're you're, you're being paid for the crowd you can pull rather than the music that you play um so that's the that's the pessimistic theme of the chapter, but actually it has an optimistic ending because the optimistic ending is that however bad it gets and however commercial it gets, there's always an underground and there's always somebody somewhere doing things for the love of it rather than for money. Um, so yeah. No, Bill, uh, for someone who spent the last two decades archiving and telling the history of the DJ, I find it interesting how you're now fully engaged and participating in, in what I see as the future of DJing. You've got weekly podcasts, a lot of virtual DJ gigs, a lot of Zoom parties. you got your late night tales playlists and shows on Spotify and also a Patreon, which I think is is really the, the, the cutting edge of things that, that a DJ can be on. Can you tell me what your thoughts are on this brave new world of DJing and the different opportunities it brings to to share music with people? Well, I think there's never been a a greater opportunity for individual DJs to take kind of control of their careers in in the way that they can do now. And and, um, despite the rise of things like Spotify supposedly (laughs) undermining the DJ's role, um, I I listen to... um, uh, playlist on Spotify and they're never as good as someone who DJs who can recommend things that you would never think of so I think the role of the DJ is still just as important now as it was 20-30 years ago 
Um, and also, I am interested in new things, whether that's new music that hasn't come out yet or whether it's new discoveries of old records from 30 years ago. That's what kind of drives me as a music fan is to find things I've never heard before and, and I play them to people, really. That's the, the thing that kind of gets me up in the morning and gets me excited on a weekend when I'm DJing. And fellas, this has been great. It's been such a treat to have you on the show. We obviously love your book as we've devoted 20-something weeks of our life to discussing it. So uh, for Ryan Harkness, this is Nate Wilcox signing off for Techno Roll. Our guests have been Bill Brewster and Frank Broughton. The book is Last Night, A DJ Saved My Life, The History of the Disc Jockey. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Techno Roll will be taking a break for eight weeks while Nate and James Porter discuss Ken Burns' history of country music, but Ryan will be back with a multi-part discussion on Simon Reynolds' Energy Flash, a deep dive into 90s UK rave culture. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.pantheonpodcasts.com. Last Night a DJ Saved My Life, The History of the Disc Jockey, is published by Grove Press. Please support our show by ordering via the Amazon referral link on our website, letitrollpodcast.com. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.